0: Well, for the past nine months at uh, Rock Valley Bible Church, we have been in a verse-by-verse, phrase-by-phrase exposition of the book of Colossians. Uh, In fact, I counted up um, 31 sermons we have been through Colossians. You think about my messages are 50 minutes long, 60 minutes long. Um, So that would put us about whatever, 30 hours, 25 hours of teaching. On this passage, this great letter of the Apostle Paul, and today we have one final exposition that comes in chapter four, verse sixteen. If you'd uh, like to do so, I invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Colossians chapter four, verse sixteen. Before I read that verse, I just want to tell you of the many benefits to the approach that we have taken at uh, Rock Valley Bible Church, predominantly to just take a book and go through phrase by phrase, verse by verse, and. It helps give us vision. We know what's going next. If uh, you want to prepare for worship, you can just read ahead in Colossians. And you know where we're going. Uh, it also helps us um, really follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's not that every week I come, week after week, with my favorite topics or the topics that I think Rock Valley Bible Church needs in A Game and Sunday. Uh, we let the Holy Spirit decide as we take the next section. It, it also helps us with respect to context. Um, in terms of as we go from week to week and we we see what Paul has said before and, and we see how it fits in and connects and can anticipate where it's going to go in the future and kind of see the whole logical flow of thought. Also, it helps us to go slow enough so we dig and can unearth everything in this letter. And in fact, there's nothing really here that we've skipped. We haven't skipped things because we don't like what they say. We don't skip things because we don't really understand it. We we just go at it and address it as best as we can. In fact, a lot of times the size of my text each Sunday, I've really chosen it to say, okay, how far can I go with really trying to expand and dig upon everything that's there? I've not wanted to go too quickly so as to skim the surface. If anything, I want to model before you how it is we can take the Scriptures and, and believe them and teach them and learn them and know them. Having said that, as many of the advantages there are in expositional preaching, there's also some dangers as well. These past nine months, I think we could very easily have the danger of missing the forest because of our interest in the trees. So interested might we be in the details, we might miss the whole. And so this morning, I'm going to preach a message that covers the entire book in, uh, in one sitting. I think I have warrant for this approach, and it comes in chapter 4, verse 16. Let me read it for you. Paul writes, when this letter, referring to Colossians, when the book of Colossians, or this letter of Colossians is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. When those in Colossae first received this letter, it was Paul's desire that they would read this whole letter out loud, publicly, completely, for all to hear it's what I want to do this morning. At the end of my message this morning, I'm going to read through the book of Colossians without comment. And when I finish reading through it, it will finish our exposition of the book of Colossians. We'll shut our Bibles, I'll pray, and uh, we'll carry on with our service, closing it. Now, reading through the entire epistle of Colossians, or even reading that much Scripture, might not be our, our habit at Rock Valley Bible Church. Um... But it was the habit of the early church. Um, You just think about uh, Paul. He's saying, hey, have this letter read? Also, there's this other letter coming from Laodicea that uh, he wanted them to read in their church. All types of discussion comes up about what this letter is. People are trying to figure out what it was. Some say it was the book of Ephesians. Some say it was Philemon. Some say it was a letter that's lost that we don't have. Some say there was a letter from the Laodiceans to Paul. Some say it was this apocryphal collection is called the Apocryphal Epistle to the Laodiceans, which is really just a conglomeration of a bunch of Paul's letters all put together in phrases and stuff. It's really probably not his. We don't know, bottom line, what this letter was coming from Laodicea. It was Paul's letter probably to Laodicea Laodiceans in some sense. We don't know what exactly it is, but we do know that he wanted this letter to be read in the church. Um, and just even as Colossians was read, we we know... Uh, about insight into the practice of the other church, how they read entire letters to congregations out loud. Now, they didn't have the Bible back then, and so it was a good need for them to be guided in the truth by hearing from the apostles who knew the truth from God. And, and though we don't have, though we today have our Bibles, it still is good for us to read Scripture uh, during our services. Now, I've had people comment to me before about uh, the length sometimes of our Scripture reading. And some have come and said, wow, that that, that was a long reading. And I think it's good for us to hear long portions of Scripture read. I think that it honors the Lord and it helps us to hear it like the early church did. But in our Scripture reading, we don't normally take as much as I'm going to take today in terms of all of Colossians. It takes about 12 minutes to read through all of it. And so we're going to have that opportunity. But before we did that, I I wanted to give you kind of an overview of the book so that you might catch it maybe in, uh, in fuller understanding of what's going on. So I want to step back and consider the Lot- letter of Colossians as a whole. And even before we get into kind of talking about the contents of it, we need to understand a little bit that we are at a disadvantage to those in Colossae because we are, uh, are distant from them. We don't live when they live. We're not surrounded by the circumstances that they were surrounded by. There are some things that Paul references here in terms of the false teachings of people that for us it's not... We don't hear these people teaching these things exactly today. He's going to talk about particular people in the church. We don't have those people in church. But to those in Colossae, all this would have made sense. They would have understood it in some sense better than we were. We do, in some sense less. But it's, it's difficult for us. So we need to really go back and understand a little bit about the history of the church and what was going on there. The history of the church began with a man named Epaphras. He was a native of Colossae. And at some point, probably in Ephesus, he heard the gospel preached from Paul, and then went back to his hometown, and then preached it in Ephesus. I'm sorry, in Colossae. He began to preach the gospel that he heard in all of its simplicity and all of its power. We don't know what, exactly what he said, but he would have said something like this: "You know, Jesus Christ, a man of Nazareth, is the Messiah. He is the one who came as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the Jewish Messiah, but..." far more than the Jewish Messiah, He's come to save Gentiles as well. In fact, He's come to save all who would place their hope and their trust in Him. He's come to save all who would confess their sins and repent of them and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, people of Colossae, I encourage you to turn from your sins and, and find forgiveness in the only place where it can be found in Christ. Believe and trust in Him. And as that message went forth, There were many who came to faith in Christ. We don't know how many there were. There may have been several hundred. There may have been even as few as 20. We don't exactly know how many there were, but there was a church in Colossae. Epaphras was their first pastor. After a period of time, though, this church began to... To go on, and it began to face some danger from some false teachers who come into the church, trying to persuade the believers away from the faith. And, and the key thing to remember in Colossae is this: it's not so much they denied the truth about Christ. The issue is more that they began to add to the truth about Christ. Now, some came from a Jewish perspective, seeking to encourage the people of Colossae to return once again to the law. They said, "Yes, Jesus is good, but you need more." And particularly these with a the Jewish perspective said, you need the Old Testament. You need to follow the feasts and festivals. You need to keep the diets and the days. The Old Testament tells you what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. It tells you when to celebrate these national feasts of, of celebration to God. It tells you of the Sabbaths that you need to keep. And you need to follow all of these things. And when you do, and only when you do, then you'll be truly spiritual. There's a second group of people that came with an experiential perspective. It experienced God and wanted others to experience Him as well. They wanted to seek some spiritual, religious experience as the key to Christian living. And they said, yes, Jesus is good, but you need more. They said, you need to have an experience. You need to look to the heavenly realms. You need to worship the angels. Seek for visions and dreams. Let God speak to you directly. And when that happens, it's then and only then that you'll truly be spiritual. Others came from an ascetic perspective, telling those in Colossi to submit themselves to the rigors of self-discipline. They say, Jesus is good, but you need more said, you need to beat your body into submission. You need to stay away from these foods. You need to not be involved with particular activities. You need to guard against fleshly indulgence, punishing yourself when you do wrong. Maybe sleep on a hard floor. Don't bathe for weeks. Fast until you feel the pain and really show God how committed you are to Him. And then, and only then they would say you'll be truly spiritual. And others, perhaps, came with some kind of combination of these different perspectives. Some may have liked the um, the Jewish holidays, but really disdained a little bit about the the need to um, you know keep this discipline stuff. You don't need to do that. Or some were really into the experiencing God, but not through visions, but through diets. And so they could have combined all these different things, all kind of kind of melded together. In fact, there is lots of discussion um, in terms of commentaries and scholarly works. What was the quote unquote Colossian heresy? What exactly are they teaching? And I think you just take these three things, an emphasis upon Jewish festivals and feasts, an emphasis upon um, mysticism, and an emphasis upon asceticism. And you kind of just throw them all in the pot and realize that there are elements of all that stuff stirring around. But the common thread to all these things is this, is the false teachers had a tolerance for Jesus, but insistence he needed more. They didn't deny Jesus so much. They simply emphasized that you needed more things on top of that. You need to seek some religious experience on top of your faith because Christ just wasn't fully enough. And as Paul would have addressed these things, particularly at the end of chapter 2, those in Colossae would have heard, oh, yeah, that's what this person said. That's what this person said. That's what... So they would have heard these things. So it's important for us to kind of get a background on what was taking place theologically there. And really it's because of these heresies that Paul was really stirred to write to these Colossian believers. In this letter, as he addresses this false teaching, showing how deficient it was, he basically sought to point them to the solution to their problems. Right, The way to walk righteously and the way to please God, it was not in these religious things. It was rather by looking to Jesus Christ alone. It's in looking to Him alone that you can learn true righteousness, that you can truly please God That's what Paul's message is. Believe and trust in Christ. And it's then that your life will be honoring to the Lord. Well, let's begin. What I want to do is kind of survey through all of Colossians here to catch his flow of thought. And then I'll read Colossians and we'll be finished. Well, consider the first chapter. The first two verses, Paul gives a a short introduction. And then after that, he speaks about his joy in hearing what Christ did among those in Colossae. Look at verse 3. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. According to verse 6, we see that their faith was constantly bearing fruit and it was increasing. And it had doing that ever since at the end of verse 6, right? Since the day they heard of this and understood the grace of God in truth. They'd heard this grace. They've heard this message of truth. They believed it. They embraced it. They were growing and increasing. They were bearing in fruit. And Paul heard about all these things, verses 6 and 7 and 8, through Epaphras, who came and told Paul all about these things. And he expresses his thanks to God for what he had done in the life of these Colossian believers. In fact, Paul's joy is so great that he again tells the believers here in verse 9 about how since the day we've heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. Here it is, already in the first nine verses, Paul speaks to them twice about how much he is praying for these people. He has a passion for them, he has a heart for them. He can't be with them because he's confined in jail, but he can pray for them. And Paul says he's always praying for them. Now one of the things that these words demonstrate is a great love and care and concern that Paul had for these people. You know, see, Colossians isn't a cold theological treatise. It's a warm-hearted letter of love to these people. And really, it's a point of application. I want to pause here even for a moment. that Just right here, of how much Paul is caring for these people. You know, I've heard it said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And uh, that's really how Paul starts this epistle. He's showing them how much he cares. Because... Until they see how much he cares, they don't care how much he knows. And in your circumstance, it might be the same as well. You might have the solution in your hands to somebody's problem. If you might have hear it. Take it. And unless they're convinced you're really caring for them, they might not take the solution. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. I'll do it my way. But see how important it is to care for people and to love them and then bring them the solution to the problem. Because then they're more apt to take it. And I just say, Paul's passion passionate for prayer. He's always praying. Since the day we heard of it, we've not stopped praying for you. Let that sink in. Let let it sink in of how much he loves and cares for these people. In fact, later in chapter 2, he's going to talk about how great struggle he has for them because of his great love for them. He talks in chapter 1, verse 24 about the sufferings he has because of his love for the church of Christ. That's a theme that kind of goes through. Paul just kind of oftentimes puts it in there about his care for them. Well, in verse 9, he continues on and tells them how exactly he's praying for them. He gives a content of his prayer. He's praying for them that, you can see it, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. His false teachers are coming in. They're teaching different things. He says, I want you to know have a knowledge of His will in all spiritual understanding. So you can discern what's wrong, you can discern what's right, and embrace what is right. And then, as they understand what is right, so that, verse 10, gives another instance, another purpose, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Right, So that your behavior, as it flushes itself out, will be right and appropriate, worthy of the Lord. God is here on one side, and... And our lives are here on the scale on the other side. And as we learn about God, then we can learn a life that's worthy of the Lord. And even he gets particularly, here's what a life that's worthy of the Lord looks like. It's to please God in all respects. Paul wants these Colossian believers to please God. He wants it so that God, when he looks down on Colossae, starts to put a smile on his face and starts to be happy with the people in Colossae. Because they're believing the right things, because they're knowing the right things, and they're living the right way. And then it talks even about how a life that's pleasing the Lord works itself out. It's really here in four ways. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And then even at the end of verse 11, joyously giving thanks to the Father. Right. He's just praying that they would have a, heart, have, a, have a life that fully knows God, that knows Him right, that can discern the errors, that then walks in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him, bearing fruit, increasing, being strengthened, and joyously thanking God all the time. That's what he's praying for. In other words, you might say it like this, he's praying for their spiritual maturity and stability. It's what he's praying for. And isn't this what everyone seeks? Doesn't everyone seek spiritual maturity and stability? So the false teachers were seeking, Hey, if you really want to be spiritual, right, stable, here's how you go. And everybody in some sense is seeking some type of peace of mind, peace of soul that understands where they are. So a lot of people think that, find that through false means. But he's saying that through true means, what is right, I want you to be steadfast, stable and mature, Well, rather than following the ways of the false teachers, Paul was saying the way to do this is to trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And in verses 13 through 23, Paul then puts forth a description of Jesus, which I would say this is absolutely stunning. He lifts Jesus high. He calls Him, right, the, the one who rescued us from darkness and delivered us into His kingdom taking us from our sins of darkness and bringing us into the light to the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's the one that's redeemed us, verse 14. He's the one that's forgiven us of our sins. Jesus Christ is the image of God. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, 15. Verse 16, Jesus Christ is the creator of all the universe. In fact, it's Jesus Christ, the very last two words, All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's the reason why the world was created, for Jesus Christ. He's a sustainer of the universe. In Him, all things hold together. And then, He's the head of the church, verse 18. And the culmination of everything is this, that Jesus Christ will come to have first place in everything. And in these words, Jesus really, or Paul, just prepares the whole argument for the rest of the letter. Jesus is so great and so glorious and has done so much for you, it doesn't make any sense for you to seek anything else, is what he's saying. And again, here's a great point of application for us this morning. The solution to all of your problems in life is Jesus. The solution to all your problems in life is Jesus. It doesn't matter in a very real sense what the exact issues you're dealing with today are. It doesn't matter the exact problems that you're experiencing today. Jesus, the Creator, Sustainer, Lord of the Universe, is fully capable of saving you from your sins, which is ultimately your greatest problem. I don't care if your problem is that you were abused as a child. I don't care if your problem is that you don't have any relationship at all with your father. I don't care if you're addicted to pornography or you're gluttonous or you have financial struggles or your kids are out of control or you're having bouts with depression. Jesus is your answer because He's the all-glorious One. He's the all-powerful One. I love the way that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He was trained as a physician but later was called to preach the Gospel of Christ. Listen to what he said. This is a more lengthy quote. But think about it. In in his early days, he was a doctor. Then he became a preacher and he contrasts these two things. what What a doctor does and what a preacher does. And he says this, Having spent the first part of my adult life as a physician in medicine, I've often been interested in the difference between the work of the physician and the work of the preacher. Of course, there are many similarities, but there is one essential difference which comes out in this way. How does the physician deal with his patient? You go to a physician's office, you think, well, how does a physician deal with me? Here's what he says. Well, the first thing he does is to ask the patient to give an account of his symptoms and troubles. His aches, his pains, where it is, how long he's, he's had it, how it began, how it, has it varied, etc. All this has to be done in great detail. The doctor takes a careful history of the case and then inquires as to the patient's previous history from childhood onwards. Having done this, he takes the family history from childhood onwards. Having done this, he takes the family history, for that might throw some considerable light upon the particular ailment. There are hereditary and familial diseases, and familiar predispositions to disease. So the family history is most important. Having ascertained these facts, then he proceeds to make his physical examination of the patient. Now with the detailed, specific, special, personal knowledge of the patient, the physician cannot do his work without these things. And at this point I say that there is such a striking contrast between the work of a physician and the work of a preacher. The preacher does not need to know these personal facts concerning his congregation. The preacher does not need to know all the details. Why? Because he knows that all the people in front of him are suffering from the same disease, which is sin. Every one of them. The symptoms may vary tremendously from case to case, but the business of the preacher is not to medicate symptoms. It is to treat the disease. Lloyd-Jones continues, He knows the problem of the factory worker. He knows the problem of the professional man because it's ultimately precisely the same. One may get drunk on beer and the other on wine, as it were. But the point is they both get drunk. One may sin in rags and the other may sin in evening dress. But they both sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no not one. The whole world is guilty before God. It really puts the situation in perspective, right? The, the solution to all the problems regardless of how it manifests itself, is Jesus Christ. And Paul would say here, in light of verses 13 through 18, look to the all-sufficient Christ. He's the only one able to save. In fact, look at how powerful He is. Look at verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It's not other things you're going to add to Christ that's going to make you more holy before God. It's Jesus who can. Jesus there reconciled you to make you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach above God. There's nothing more that you can add to that. It's only Jesus who can. In fact, Paul ends chapter 1 on this theme and through the first half of chapter 2, he's just speaking about just how great Jesus is to make you complete in Him. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. The great mystery among the Gentiles is this. Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ, the sovereign, reigning, ruling one in us, cleansing us, purifying us, empowering us that so we might stand complete in Him. And that was Paul's goal of his whole, whole life. We're proclaiming Christ, he says in verse 28. Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. The goal here is completeness in Christ. It's not completeness in spiritual works or spiritual experience or self-discipline. It's complete in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says that Christ's, that the mystery is, right there at the end of verse 2, is Christ Himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not other things. It is Jesus Christ who has all the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, In Him, in Jesus, by faith and trust in Him, you've been made complete. Jesus is fully sufficient to make you complete, to make you stand before God blameless. And look what surrounds this phrase in verse 10. Look back at verse 9 of chapter 2. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Him you've made, been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. You don't need to question the power of Jesus because He is God in the flesh. You have to question the authority of Jesus because He rules over all. You don't have to question the sufficiency of Jesus because He alone makes you complete. So Paul's arguing. He's setting up this whole argument. It's not these other things. It's Christ alone that makes you complete. And don't be persuaded to these other philosophies. Look at verse 4. I say this so that no one would delude you with persuasive argument. Don't be taken in by these other teachings. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Any other way of thinking than what Paul was thinking is contrary to the gospel. It's deceiving and it's man-centered. It's Christ Jesus and He alone that will make you perfect before the Lord. In fact, he reminds them again, verse 13, about what great work God did in them. We said, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Your sufficiency is in Christ and faith and trust in Him. It's not... It's not in anything else. And perhaps the center of his exhortations come right down here in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Let me ask you, how did those in Colossae receive Christ Jesus? How did they receive Him? By faith, right? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So, how is it then that the Colossian believers ought to live? Seeking more experiences? Seeking the Jewish regulations? Or seeking to live by faith? So Paul's saying. He says, As you have received Jesus by faith, continue your lives living by faith in him. Be rooted in him, be grounded in him, be established in your faith. Overflow with gratitude. These are the things you're taught. These are the things you have to maintain and hold. It's faith in Christ how you're saved. It's faith in Christ how you should live. There's nothing more you need to add to your life other than Christ. Well, Paul then lays the foundation theologically about then dealing with the false teachers. He says in verse 16 and 17, it's not the Sabbath festivals or new moons or Sabbath days, it's not the Jewish things because those things are shadows. The substance is Christ. Said so it's not mystical experiences. Verses eight and nineteen. They just inflate the fleshly mind. And they fail to hold on to Christ. Verses twenty and twenty-one. It's it's not the ascetic commands, right? Stay away from that because you can't touch that. You'll be defiled. It may look good on the outside. You may be walking righteously on the outside, but Paul says, in verse twenty-three, it's of no value against fleshly indulgence. You might tame the outside or look like you're taming the outside, but inwardly you're you're ravening with lust and covetousness. So that's not how to solve the problem. Solve solve the problem is faith in Christ and trust in Him. That's what he says. Now, lest anyone think that Paul's advocating a gospel that's all pie in the sky without any practical application, which sits back and says, "I believe in Jesus. I've let it go. I've let God now just whatever." He says, no, no, it's, it's, not, it's not quite that. He continues in chapter 3 with many, many exhortations of how it is to walk the life worthy of the Lord. He gives command after command after command of, of way of applying the gospel that he is preaching. It's not to add to your life. It's not to add to your spiritual experience or standing before God. But it is to live a life worthy of a calling. Chapter 1, verse 10. And it's important, though, to see how it works. The impact is made from the inside out, not from the outside in. Right? It's not outward pressure, but it's inward grace-motivated obedience and love to God. That's the key to everything. And that's how verses 1 and 2 starts. He says, okay, think about the realities of everything you have in Christ. If you have, received, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are upon the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ, in with Christ in God. And, and Paul is saying this: Think about the great realities of your faith in Christ. Let your mind dwell on what's right. Let your mind dwell on what's true. Let your mind dwell on where you stand in Christ. You are with Jesus Christ, seated above. And so, think about the things above. And as you do that, you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then throughout chapter 3, he talks about specific points of application. The first section in verses 5 through 11 deal with issues of self control. He deals with issues like sexual immorality and evil desire and greed and anger and slander and abusive speech. Just controlling your bodily urges, controlling your inner desires, controlling your mouth. Self control, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And then in verses 12 through 17, he deals with uh, matters of attitude. Attitude of the heart, like compassion and kindness and forbearance and love and thankfulness. That really looks to others with a genuine heart of love and desires to build them up. The third matters he deals with, those are relationships. Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, and how they ought to relate to one another. And then the fourth deals with communication, prayer to God and evangelism towards others. Really hitting what's appropriate. What? How is it that you live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It flushes itself out. But rather than focusing on all these outward things, it focuses internally. And throughout all these applications, Paul uses a word picture of how we dress. He talks about taking our sinful behavior and taking it off like we take off a garment at the end of a day. He uses that terminology in verse 8. He uses that terminology in verse 9. All right? You think about the end of the day. You've been out working. Some of you work jobs, construction jobs or whatever. You can get hot and sweaty. Some of you are in the office or run around. You know, you, you, you get home and you take off your clothes. Sometimes they're dirty and smelly and stinky and you don't want them anymore. So you just take them off and put them aside. And also, you put on righteous behavior. So you would put on a garment, say, at the beginning of the day, which is a clean behavior. It's a right behavior and you're ready for the day. It's just what you want to wear. It's what it's appropriate to wear and he talks about putting on these things in verse 10 and in verse 12. Now, these are all in their natural expressions of how we should live as believers in Christ. And notice also how different these are than what the, the false teachers in Colossae were telling them to do. They were focusing on religious ceremonies, mystical experience, beating the body into submission. But Paul says this, Now let the truth of the gospel impact your life and then live differently. Think of the realities of an all-sufficient Savior. Think about how glorious He is, how lovely He is, how holy He is. Think about how He saved you from your sin. If you just meditate here on verse 13 that Jesus Christ has forgiven us of all our transgressions. Boy, how can we live but a life of grace-motivated obedience and love towards Him? Well, then, beginning in chapter 4, verses 7 and following, he concludes the letter with some very practical instructions. He writes here to ten different people. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus. Some of these were with Paul in in Rome, in prison. Some of these were in Colossae, to whom he's writing to. And some of them he was sending from Rome to Colossae. Each of them had own different instructions, all of them. He had practical advice for all of them. They would have understood these things. He's trying to wrap up some things administratively. And then Paul ends with this final piece of advice here in verse 18. He says, Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. In effect, Paul is saying this, Remember to pray for me, and may God bless you. So he's saying, Remember my imprisonment. Remember to pray for me. And particularly, remember he said in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, Praying at the same time for us, not that we get out of prison, but that God will open a door for the words that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. So just, just remember us. We try to be faithful to Christ in our imprisonment. And there's Colossians. That's all. So let, let's review again. It starts in chapter 1 with a, an expression of thankfulness to God for everything that's happened in Colossae. Uh, praying always for them. Showing Him of His great care. And they talk about Jesus and how glorious He is in chapter 2. And how wonderful and all-sufficient He is. And, and then spinning um, in chapter 1, rather. Verses 13 through 23. Talking about how glorious He is. How He saved them. they He talks about how you're complete in Christ. How all the mystery, all the fullness of knowledge is in Jesus Himself. He's sufficient. That's where you're looking at. Don't be persuaded from these other philosophies. Then at the end of chapter 2, not Judaism, not mysticism, not asceticism. Then chapter 3, let me show you how to live. Live as one who's thinking upon the things above, thinking of the Gospel, flushing itself out. Let me give you some practical administrative details at the end. Okay? You got Colossians in your mind? Let's read it. And may the Lord apply it to sink deep into our hearts. In fact, you know, even at this point, you might want to want to you might close your Bibles. You might have open them. I'm not telling you, you how to do that. But you think about those in Colossi. They wouldn't have had Bibles in their laps. They wouldn't have stumbled over the words maybe I stumble over. They'd have just heard this for the first time. So if you want to just put your Bibles down, look at me. Just listen to the epistle, you've thought it through, and then we'll be done. And Phil Gusky will come and close our service. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ Jesus on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, "...so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ." for this purpose i also labor striving according to his power which mightily works within me for i want you to know how great a struggle i have on your behalf and for those who are at laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my faith my face that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore... As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seating, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and greed, which are mounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the One who created Him. A renewal which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God, whatever you do in word or deed, through all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a Master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I've also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech Always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is short. I pray that you would simply bless the reading of Your Word. Bless the hearing of Your Word. Protect us, the church, from false teaching which would pull us away from the pure gospel of Christ. And show us of His glories that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I pray in Christ's name.